Well, good morning to you and welcome to Christ the King. Great to be with you all this morning. I am Clay Holland, senior pastor here at Christ the King, and I would invite you, if you have a Bible or a phone or an iPad or, you know, whatever, if you would like to, to turn to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 32. It'll also be projected up here on the uh, screen for you. So Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. I'll tell you, it's been a doozy of a week, right? It's, been a, it's actually been a doozy of a week and a doozy of a year. That makes it like pretty intense um, in a lot of different ways. And I don't know about you, but there has been in my own kind of operating system, this kind of low-level hum of anxiety, right? This kind of low-level hum of uncertainty. It's just been this kind of lingering question uh, it, with respect to my citizenship, you know, as an American, like, are we going to get through this? Are we going to pull through this week? Are we going to pull through this year? Wh- who are we and what are we going to be on the other side of, of everything that has happened uh, in our country and in our world uh, this year, this calendar year of 2020? And we don't know the answers to those questions. We really don't. But we do know that we have ultimately a good king who sits on his throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have a, an enduring and an unshakable place in his enduring and unshakable kingdom by virtue of our faith in him. And we know one other thing that we're about to read about in this passage. And it is that this king, this king Jesus, has faced fear and has faced suffering that we will never be able to face, no matter what it is that happens to us on this earth. That's really what his passionate prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is all about. And so let's uh, read this passage about Jesus' prayer in the Garden, and then I'll pray for us. So let's, uh, this is Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer. Is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you um, for peering into the cup, the furnace of the wrath of 
your father and walking willingly into it and not away from it. We pray, Father, that in that we would see the great hope of salvation that we have and that you would encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1555, two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were led out of a jail cell in Oxford, England. Uh, and they were being led to the town square. If you visit Oxford today, you can still see the site where this took place. They were being led out of jail to their execution. And there's a, a simple cross in the street, Broad Street in Oxford, where you can see this place. It was the site of their execution by burning at the stake, which seems like a really terrible way to be executed. Ridley and Latimer were Protestants. They'd kind of been caught up in a political crossfire that they didn't invent. But a lot of people back in those days got caught up in crossfires that they didn't invent. It was the crossfire of Henry VIII, who was dead, and his daughter Mary, who was alive. Henry VIII, if you remember your history, was the king who wanted to separate himself from the church in Rome partly for religious reasons, but partly because of selfish reasons. There were things that he wanted in his life that were being, you know, kind of, the, the Pope was putting cramp on his style, I guess you could say. And so he was the one who declared in England that he was going to be the supreme king and head over the church. Now, we know that that's Jesus, um, but that was what he declared himself to be. And so the Church of England was created, he died. There was a power struggle. His son reigned for a few months, but that didn't last very long. And his daughter, Mary, who has now come through history to be known with the unfortunate nickname of Bloody Mary, took over the throne. And she didn't want any part of this Church of England thing. She wanted everything to be back the way that it was. And so she wanted to tie uh, England back to the church in Rome. And all of these pastors and leaders who were tied to the Church of England, some of which were by conviction and some of which were by circumstance, kind of got caught up in the crossfire. Ridley and Latimer were two that were tied to it by conviction, but they were also caught up in the political backwash. And they were arrested and they were sentenced to execution. When Ridley and Latimer were led to the stake that they were going to be bound to to be burned, the first thing that they did was to kneel and to pray. And then as they were tied up and the wood was stacked around them and there was gunpowder that was hung around their necks, and then the fire was lit and Fox's Book of Martyrs says by legend that this is what happened that Hugh Latimer spoke up when the fire was first lit and said these words, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle that by God's grace in England, as shall never be put out. Now, if he thought to actually say that when he was about to be burned at the stake, kudos to him. Uh, the irony and the, you know, and, and the presence of mind to think that up is pretty intense. I don't know if it is legendary, but the point uh, was you know, that they were, the, by their martyrdom, they were going to light a fire that was going to carry this Protestant Reformation on into history. Now, this is just one of many, many stories of martyrs calmly going to their death. 
Greek history is full of stories like this. Socrates joking around and still continuing to teach with his disciples as the cup of hemlock that he is forced to drink is placed into his hand very calmly. The bishop Polycarp telling his executioners to stop making speeches. Enough already. I've heard enough sermons. I'm not going to repent. Will you please kill me so I can go to heaven? You know, those kinds of stories. Even the passengers of United Flight 93 on 9-11, famously attacking their hijackers. And no one will ever forget the words of Todd Beamer that his wife overheard while the phone was still on, who said, let's roll. And they all went, and they all attacked, calmly, knowing that death may lie on the other side, but serenely facing it. With all of these stories, here's a question. Why does Jesus seem so much more anxious than all of these other people. The last thing that you could say about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was that he faced his death as a stoic, right? So that leads to a question. Is Jesus, in fact, a weaker person than Hugh Latimer or Nicholas Ridley? Is Jesus a weaker human being than Socrates? Is Jesus weaker than Todd Beamer? No, that is not it. The answer for the anguish of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is exactly this. Jesus did not die as a martyr. Jesus did not die as a martyr. Jesus died as a substitute. And as walking up to the brink of that substitutionary death, peering into what lay before him in the next day, seeing the cup that is set before him, Jesus was unique in all history. Jesus was unique in all history that he spent such a night in anguished prayer as had never been seen before and will never be seen since. Because the death of Jesus on the cross is not a martyrdom. It's a substitutionary atonement. So as much as we can this morning, let's look into the cup that Jesus took from the hand of his Father. And we'll do this in two aspects. One is to see the cup of God's wrath. And the second is to see the cup of God's love. The cup of God's wrath and the cup of God's love. So let's look at first at the cup of God's wrath. Now, I'd wager on the front end to... That, that, that many of you bristle a little bit when I start talking about the wrath of God. We don't like that. We don't like putting the word God and the word wrath in the same sentence because many of us think, and if you don't think this, you may have thought this, or you certainly, if you have unbelieving friends, which you should, they probably think this, that, that wrath is unbefitting for their concept of God, Right? If God exists, a lot of people in our world argue, if God exists, he should simply be a God of love. Only love, no anger, no wrath. But there's no doubt when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, remove this cup from me, he is speaking of the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon him at his death. We saw a hint of this last week when we talked about Jesus instituting the sacrament of the Lord's Supper where he said this cup is the covenant of the blood of the covenant. And there are other unmistakable Old Testament references to God's wrath being poured out upon sin as being poured out by a cup. The prophet Ezekiel tells the people of Judah in chapter 23 that they will drink their sister's cup 
meaning that the same fate will befall Jerusalem that had already befallen the northern kingdom of Israel because of their sin and their rebellion of God, against God. God says, you shall drink it and you shall tear your breasts. The cup is God's judgment poured out upon them for their sin. The prophet Isaiah is even more explicit in chapter 51 when he says, actually by way of a promise of grace to his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. You see that cup that God is taking from them contains the wrath of God. It is going to be poured out upon those who refuse his rule and his reign, who worship other gods, who try to become their own God. So there's no question at all that what Jesus is referring to in asking this cup to be removed from him is that, is that it is the cup of God's wrath. You see, what Jesus knew, and that his disciples did not know, what Jesus was peering into the face of during that long night in the garden when he was pouring to God out his soul, was that God was going to pour out his wrath due to the sin of his people, past, present, and future, upon the shoulders of Jesus. No mere human being could ever bear such weight. And that explains the deep, the deep, deep and abiding distress of Jesus in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I think this is a good place to pause and to address a potential objection to the biblical account of the gospel, which is this. I can't believe in the wrath of God. That makes no sense to me, you know? The God I believe in, or the God I would believe in if I believed that there was a God, if he existed at all, that God would be a God of love. That God would love everybody. He would never get angry. He would never have wrath. Now, this is a very common objection in our culture today. This is probably a question that you've asked in your own heart and in your own mind, you know, from time to time. Certainly, it's something that I've faced both in my own heart and pastorally. But the truth really is this. Who really wants a God that doesn't get angry at evil and injustice? What kind of a God would it be that simply shrugged his shoulders at real, true evil and said, ah, what are you going to do, you know? I, I, can't, I can't do anything about this. You know, I have no control over this. No big deal anyway, right? What kind of a God would turn a blind eye to genocide in Rwanda? What kind of a God would turn a blind eye to the Holocaust or Stalin starving Ukraine to feed Moscow, the Islamic State killing men, women, and children who just happened to be in their way? And that's just part of the 20th century and a little bit of the 21st century. I mean, who could serve a God who would let all of that and much, much more go unpunished? Who would be out of control? Who, would, who wouldn't care about that? You know, I think deep down, we all know that we want that to be true. We want there to be justice in this world. Believers and unbelievers alike want there to be such a thing as justice. 
Just, I mean, just think about how recently that word justice has been used. Just in the past six months, it's been a, it's been a ton. The problem is not the concept of justice. The problem is, is that we define it differently. And when you have no standard of justice to build yourself on, you're going to get different answers to that question, of course. So I'm not asking about for you to consider the, 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 the competing definitions of justice, but what I am asking you to consider is this. Why is it that so many people, both believers and unbelievers, are calling out for justice? How could that be? How particularly could an unbeliever call out for justice? You see, calls for justice mean that a sense of justice is embedded somewhere in the human heart. There's something embedded in every human heart because we are created in the image of God that makes us as human beings capable of saying that's right, that's wrong, and that's evil even if you don't know where that comes from. So I'm not getting at the accuracy of the definitions of right and wrong in our culture. I'm simply getting at the shared sense of it. There's a shared sense of something being right and something being wrong and something being good and something being bad. There's something about that. But here's the deal. In a purely materialistic world that is only driven by Darwinian forces, this, has no, this makes no sense. Justice has no meaning. If the world really is about survival of the fittest, if the strong really do prey on the weak in order to survive in advance, then who cares? At the end of the day, who cares? Who really cares if nations murder civilians to extend their borders by a couple of miles? Who really cares if one ethnic group tries to wipe another ethnic group off of the face of the earth? Who cares? Well, we care. And we often care, even if we aren't followers of Jesus, because we're created in the image of God, and God cares. God cares. He cares so much that he promises that he will mete out his justice. That he will mete out his judgment against all who do evil. All who are ultimately wicked, either in this life or in the next. We want a God who will do that. Right? We want a God who will do that. And if God did not love his creation and his people, he'd shrug his shoulders and he'd just say, he'd just not care. He would just turn his back and he would just let this whole thing burn to the ground, but he is not going to do that. Because if God really is a God of love, if the Bible is true, if God is love, he must also be angry at evil. He must also be angry at evil and angry enough to do something about it. C.S. Lewis once made this point in a letter that he wrote to a fictional friend named Malcolm in a little book that he wrote called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. The letter Lewis was responding to was one in which his imaginary friend, who was uncomfortable with the idea that God would get angry, wrote this. The live wire doesn't feel angry with us, but if we blunder against it, we get a shock. This is essentially a little bit of a, a, of a deist, you know, conception, you know. God doesn't act, God is not actually a person. He doesn't actually, you know, um, 
get angry at our sin, but he's holy, and if, you know, we bump up against him, you know, we'll get zapped a little bit by him. That's what he's saying. But Lewis responded this way, my dear Malcolm, what do you suppose that you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of angered majesty? You've shut us up all in despair, for the angry can forgive but the live wire cannot. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval and then you turn his love into mere humanitarianism. The consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. Only a God who pours out his wrath at evil is capable also of forgiving such evil. That is the cup that Jesus was peering into, the cup of God's wrath, that so that it is not poured out upon us was about to be poured out upon him. And so then we see the cup of God's love. God pours out his wrath on evil and sin, not because he is arbitrarily angry, but because he is incredibly loving. He has a solution to the problem of evil. And his solution to the problem of evil is not to turn a blind eye to it. It's not to pretend that it doesn't exist. It is to enter into the world that he created. The world that is broken and fallen due to our sin and rebellion against him. And this to enter into it and then to buy it back. To take it back. To purchase it back. And us with it through payment of a price. Jesus, you see, suffers upon himself the full and complete wrath of God on the cross. And he does so as a substitute for all who trust that that sacrifice is for them. And so he suffers unspeakable anguish in the garden because he sees in the garden what is coming to him. You know, there are a number of ways uh, for us to react when suffering comes our way. I think you could escape to, uh, or you could, you could characterize two of them that are most prominent kind of in the world that we live in as escapism or detachment. One approach to suffering is to escape suffering. And that's a normal, no, walking purposefully into suffering for the sake of suffering is also not biblical. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when the normal pain of human life comes, one of our reactions to that normal pain of human life is to escape it. Um, that, you know, we'll try to do everything that we can in our lives to create mechanisms so that we don't have to feel it. We don't have to feel the pain of that suffering, you know. So we just leave, you know. I'm not talking about leaving town. I mean, we all leave town from time to time when we need to kind of get out of the city and, you know, find a new way of life. I'm talking about leaving the pain of the emotions that is caused by suffering. So what if a relationship that you're in starts to get uncomfortable, right? You're in a relationship. You think that it is for your good. You think that it's going to help you. It's going to build you up. But then you realize that other person's a human being, and they start to it starts to rub, and it gets uncomfortable, and you start to feel feelings that you don't really like. And they're like, you know, these are a little bit yucky and icky feelings. So what do you do? Well, you leave it. You leave that relationship, or a responsibility that you have taken on gets too difficult. You just stop doing it. Or what if life itself, like this past year, starts to get really uncomfortable? 
Well, we don't want that suffering. We don't want to feel those things. So maybe we self-medicate with alcohol or with drugs or with images. We just want to escape it. Pretend that it doesn't exist. But there's another approach to suffering, and that approach is detachment. Detachment has actually grown in popularity in our culture. If you pay attention to blogs and podcasts that are aimed particularly young men right now in our culture, you're going to hear a lot more about Stoicism. You're going to hear a lot more about Marcus Aurelius and his Stoic approach to life. It's a life of detachment. Uh, Stoicism teaches you to detach from the situation, to suppress your desires, to suppress your emotions, to tamp down your passion. Then you'll be able to detach from it and you'll be able to think and see clearly and to navigate the situation unhindered by emotion or desire. Now, that's actually a wise way to live a good part of our life, right? We don't want always for every action we take to be guided and led by pure emotionalism. We don't want to rush into every business decision we take by every gut feeling that we have or every perceived slight on you know, social media or in a conversation with somebody by what our gut or our, you know, our emotions are telling us to do. It's simply wise. But cultivating a life of a pure emotional detachment, choosing detachment as a way of life, does actually tear apart what God meant to hold together, which is that we are full-orbed human beings. We are emotional creatures. We are capable of desire, and desire is good. We are capable of passion, and passion is good. We are capable of empathy, and empathy is really good. The deepest way, really, that we have capacity-wise to love another human being. So what do we see with Jesus? Well, he doesn't detach, and he doesn't escape. Look at verse 33. The text tells us he was distressed and deeply troubled. We cannot actually get at the words here in English. If you've ever experienced something in your life that was so viscerally shocking that all of a sudden you felt like you were going to throw up, or you did throw up, or you started to see stars, or you got that kind of tunnel vision, or you started to shake. Something you experienced in life was just so, it was so horrifying that you were physically reacted to it. That's what Jesus is experiencing right here. He is physically reacting. Another of the gospel writers says that he was so troubled that he sweat drops of blood. An emotional, a physical reaction to this intense turmoil. He says in his own words in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He's basically saying, I could die here just looking at what's coming at me. Do you see that? It's so hard to, it's so hard to communicate this passion of Jesus in, in just these English words. He's saying, he's saying I'm, on the edge, I'm on the edge of death just, just looking at what's ahead of me. I could die here in the garden. He asked God that the hour and the cup might pass from him. Imagine that. This whole life has been aiming towards the cross. He's always known and he gets on the edge of it. He's like, do I have to do this? Is there another way? And he was hurt, genuinely hurt, that his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, that he asked to sit with him in his pain and his anguish and his turmoil left him by sleeping three times. 
He didn't detach, but he also didn't escape. Not what I will, but what you will. And when he arose from prayer, he arose to walk to his arrest and his trial and his death. Jesus didn't deny suffering. He didn't avoid or escape the suffering. What he did was he committed his suffering to God. He committed his pain and his turmoil and his suffering to God. So a couple of final thoughts. What are you doing right now with the suffering that you're facing in your life? We're all in some gradation. We're, we live on a fallen earth. That means that we're all going to be in some gradation of struggle and suffering uh, at some times. And it waxes and wanes, as, wanes with respect to how intense it is given what's going on in our lives. How are you facing it? Do you try to escape it? Just try to numb yourself from it? To medicate it or shop it away or to fantasize yourself away from it? Do you try to deny it, detach from it? Do you try to harden your heart so much that it, that it won't get in? That you harden yourself so much that you don't have to feel painful feelings and painful emotions. But then you become someone who is actually incapable over time of expressing true love to another human being because true love to another human being requires empathy. You become the person over time if you do that, if you simply try to harden yourself against suffering. You become the person over time that everybody knows hates them because you know that they know that you hate the fact that they feel pain. Or do you commit it to God? Feeling it, yes, but feeling it as one who knows you're a father in heaven that cares for you, that walked this path more intensely than you did, no matter what it is. It's, I, I, and I don't say this lightly because there's a lot of real suffering in this world, but whatever it is, it is not the same as Jesus's. He walked it before you and he walked it more intensely than you did or that I did. But the promise is that if you trust in him by faith, he unites himself to you and he will walk you with you in it. He will walk with you in it. The great Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, once sat in contemplation on this passage of Scripture. And when Jonathan Edwards sits in contemplation on passage of Scripture, he usually comes up with something pretty amazing. And this is how he described it in a sermon one time. He said this, The agony of Jesus in the garden was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. The Father, as it were, set the cup down before him. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and viewed it, its raging flames and the glowing of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners." as knowing what it was. This view Christ had in his agony. Then he acted as knowing 
what he did. Then his taking that cup and bearing such dreadful sufferings was properly his own act by an explicit choice. And so his love to sinners was the more wonderful as also his obedience to God in it. If just the taste and glimpse of these sufferings were enough to throw the eternal Son of God into shock and to nearly kill him in the anticipation of them, what then was the actual full experience of those sufferings on the cross really like? Jesus neither denied nor escaped his suffering. He committed them to his Father in heaven. He submitted to his will. And then he willingly drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross. God poured out his full wrath on him. And the beauty of it is this. If you trust in him by faith, he will never, ever, ever pour it out on you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for doing what you did. Thank you for going to the garden, for seeing and experiencing such anguish and agony, for seeing clearly what was to come, and for not running away from it, but walking into it. We thank you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.